thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Welcome to this week's podcast with Robbie. Hello. And myself, Edith, and for Simon and Mark this oh, week. It's good to be back. It's good fun, isn't it? Yeah. It's a good show this week as well. I really, I really, it was good. I like when, when there's, there's a, a couple of disagreements about films. Kids, what it's all about. But also, I like the way you make me think about film as well from discussing it with Challenge your preconceptions. Challenge it, yeah. Um, we've had a really nice email in, which I wanted to get to before we listen to this week's show from Katie in Blackpool. She says, Ahoy, Robbie and Edith. I hope you're both having a good day. Uh, and show takeover. Thanks very much. I would say yes. Takeover sounds better than holiday cover. We should (laughs) say that each time. She would really appreciate probably your help more so than mine. Uh, I'm currently doing a research project at university about masculinity in films and I thought it would be interesting if you could possibly share any of your thoughts on how men are represented in modern cinema and how this has possibly changed from the past. Well, I mean, that's a pretty in-depth subject to get into. So rather than make the podcast an extra two hours long... I mean, have you got a short, a uh, concise response for Katie? Well, weirdly, two of the films that we're talking about this week uh, are directly relevant to that. One of them is, strangely enough, Hot Tub Time Machine 2. And the other one is Force Majeure, the new film by Ruben Ostland. I don't want to kind of obviously re-review them now because the, 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 the meat of the review there. But perhaps we can talk about them after the show. Uh, well, then let's have a listen to this week's show. Good afternoon. How are you? Uh, it's Edith and Robbie in for Simon and Mark, as you heard, uh, with two hours of movie conversation. Agreements, disagreements, who knows? Let's see. Let's see. <laughs> what, a, what, what a wild week we have in store. I, I, I wonder if Mark and Simon time these holidays uh, to be think? away because they can't stand the kind of dizzying highs and uh, <laughs> doomy lows that we have to go through. I mean, I don't want to... You know, uh, let's jump not the gun here. Let's day already you know, with highs exactly, and lows. Exactly. Let's let's just wait and see how we go. We've got a lot to get through today. We do. Film wise, what are we going to be talking about? We're talking about Lost River, the directorial debut of Mr. Ryan Gosling. Uh, John Wick, the big action comeback uh, with Keanu Reeves. Uh, Hot Tub Time Machine Two, Paul Blart Mall Cop Two, two sequels there that I know Edith, you were particularly desperately awaiting. Gagging. Uh, I mean, what has it been? Gagging four years since one, six years oh, since the other. Man. My goodness, I barely slept. Uh, <laughs> but you know, anyway, we, we'll, we'll come to that. Force Majeure, the new film from Ruben Ostland, uh, Woman in Gold, and Good Kill as well with Ethan Hawke. Uh, and Keanu Reeves is going to be on the show after 2.30. I, I was uh, lucky enough to chat to him it's a couple of weeks ago now, actually, when he was in town. And you can hear that after 2.30. Please get in touch with the show. Uh, let us know what you've seen or your thoughts on what we're talking about throughout the show. And you can do that various ways. You can email, which is mail at bbc.co.uk. Uh, you can tweet us at Wittertainment or you can text us on 85058. And I only just discovered this today and I thought, Robert, you're looking very fetching today in your red speckled suit jacket with a... <laughs> With you a make little, me sound like a chicken. <laughs> even with, with a little kind of handkerchief protruding from your, your pocket there as well. That you can watch the show live on the Five Live website. The, the show is streamed. So apologies for my, uh, you know, sort of painter looking attire today, my dungarees and stuff. I'll make more of an effort next week, I promise. It's stylish um, painter. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, right, let's run through the top 10 then before we hear from Keanu just after 2.30. Um, and some of these films have been in the top 10 for a couple of weeks. Yes, 10. such as number 10, in fact, 
uh, second best exotic marigold hotel, which yeah. has been hanging around, I think, for six weeks now. Um, I actually really preferred this to the first film. I yeah. think it the, the the first film burned through all of the stereotypy stuff that you expect to see when these kind of tweedy elderly Middle Englanders uh, move to Rajasthan. You have the culture class, of course, and the stuff about food and music and and temperature and all this kind of thing. So this film starts off on a similar note. Uh, in fact, it also borrows a little plotline from Faulty Towers as well, which is quite odd. But then towards the end, it starts to kind of embrace the broader theme of the film, which is that these people have effectively, you know, they've, they've upped sticks and they've gone to retire uh, to this place that's completely full of life and vibrant, you know, and to spend the end of your life in a, in a place that's so kind of pulsing with it is, is actually a really interesting theme. And you've, yeah. you've got these really, uh, you know, we kind of know what to expect from Judy Dench, Maggie Smith, Celia Imry, you know, these are performers that we know very well. We know their skill sets. In fact, we'll, we'll come back to this with... Uh, Woman in Gold later on is with with Helen Mirren. But each of these actresses does get a chance to do something new and do something special. Celia Imrie has a fantastic moment in the back of a taxi towards the end of the film, which is one of the best things she's done in years. Yeah. It's this beautiful little scene. So I'm broadly pro this. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I was going to. I think a lot of that's done as well to Old Parker, who wrote it. I mean, having to follow up the success of that first film to me must be quite a daunting experience, I think, for anyone. But I think he's done a great job with this. Yes, absolutely. Um, no. With the writing. Number nine. Um, I love the fact that. This is the final cut for Blade Runner um, and it's introducing a whole new generation to to this film and it's great as well. We've had a, we've had a, a lovely email that we'll come in, or get to in a second about a guy taking his girlfriend who'd never seen it. He'd obviously seen it a couple of times before but I mean, what else is there left to say about, about Blade Runner but this final cut, I guess? The thing is, I'm actually envious of people who are discovering Blade Runner this way because, you know, the famous thing about Blade Runner was when it first came out, it was not very warmly received by critics. Audiences didn't quite get a hang of it and they had to, you know, feel their way around the various cuts and, and releases on VHS and then yeah. later DVD in order to kind of come to a full appreciation of, of Ridley Scott's kind of astonishing, massive vision mm. of, uh, for, for this film. Uh, but that's because it went through all these different iterations. You know, the first cut of Blade Runner actually isn't very good. And, the you know, subsequent cuts have improved on it and improved on it. I think the final cut, uh, thank goodness it is the final cut, because I don't think it can be improved beyond this. If this version of Blade Runner is your first experience of the film and if that experience is in a cinema on a big screen with an audience then you know my goodness as I say I envy you for, for, for seeing the film that way Well thank you to James Kane who's studying B in journalism not just for your email but for your lovely introduction which says dear ludicrously attractive stand-ins take that thank you uh, this bank holiday Monday my new girlfriend Marie, uh, Marie I think it is and I took in Blade Runner at the Liverpool Fact Marie had never seen the film she's German but we I don't know what, why that <laughs> <laughs> to it, but she, he's put it in brackets. But we happened to drop by the cinema five minutes before it was due to start. Despite having seen this Sai Noir quite a few times before and its varied incarnations, it was still a blast to see Blade Runner on the big screen. The problems get more evident each time I watch the movie, um, and uh, but it's still a pure cinematic pleasure. Ruger Hauer still stands out as the highlight of the movie and Vangelis' score is top-notch. As we were walking out the cinema, I asked what she thought can't talk to you right now, she said. She quickly clarified that her noggin was somewhat scrambled from the weird, creepy film. She loved it. Uh, however, the nonsense with uh, Deckard's originals, uh, sorry, origins aside, the final cut is the best version of the film and I very much encourage people to check it out. Much love, James. Thank you, James. Here, here. Uh, right then, moving on to number eight, While We're Young. Yes, While We're Young is the new film from Noah Baumbach and Noah Baumbach was kind of ticking along in the background as this kind of director of interesting, indie, quirky American comedies for a mm. while. And then with this last film, Francis Ha, 
he just suddenly seemed to transform Phoenix-like into this incredibly worthwhile American director, you know, basically worthy of consideration alongside, you know, his contemporaries or people like Wes Anderson and the Coen brothers, you know. He suddenly seems incredibly important. I don't think While We're Young is quite as good as Francis Ha. I think a lot of the uh, the, 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 the wonder of Francis Ha comes down to Greta Garwick in the lead role as well, who is just, uh, you know, those those two as an actress and director just fit together perfectly. Uh, But While We're Young is still incredibly good. It's very sort of Woody Allen-like. It's set in New York among kind of middle class people who work in film. Uh, ben Stiller plays this documentary maker who is at this um, kind of turning point in his life with his, his wife Naomi Watts. Their friends are all having babies. They've tried to have baby, but they, but they can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're wondering, you know, are we at settling down stage or are we still kind of young, footloose and fancy free? And then they meet this younger couple uh, ad, played by Adam Driver. I love Adam him. Seafood. Adam Driver. He's brilliant. Who is terrific in this because he plays this kind of hipster filmmaker, but not at all in the kind of cliche <laughs> Uh, obvious, broad, stereotypical way. It's a very, very particular performance. Very weird. Lots of angular kind of, for the benefit of people not watching the webcam, I'm kind of twisting my fingers around here. <laughs> lots of weird angular gestures. Namaste, lots of, you know, yeah. all this kind of stuff. Very, very kind of specific, specific performance. And something that just really, really stays with you. And it's it's wonderful seeing Ben Stiller kind of wrestling with, you know, is is he going to mature, uh, you know, grow gracefully and come to terms with finishing this his own film? Or is he going to jump in and be excited with Adam, Adam Driver's character and, and finish his? I thought this was really really terrific. I missed it um, when it was being screened for critics, so caught up with it uh, yesterday at the Brixton Ritzy, which is my local cinema in South London. Terrific, terrific cinema. And it was just a total pleasure to to, to, to watch this. You know, it, it, it's strange and the, the weird kind of moral conversation it's having with its characters really stays with you and keeps playing in your head afterwards. But in the moment, it is very, very funny indeed. Uh, Andrew on Facebook says, I've seen it compared to a Woody Allen comedy of manners such as Husbands and Wives, and I can see those similarities, however. Unlike Woody Allen, who plays Woody Allen, Ben Stiller does convincingly inhabit his character did pass the laugh test to a proper film not a blockbuster absolutely we go. Uh, moving on then number seven the water diviner yes know why I said it like that our first feel like I had to tiptoe into the thorny subject of actors who become directors <laughs> this is directed by uh, Russell Crowe and all I can say about the water diviner is it's exactly the kind of film that you would expect Russell Crowe to direct for himself. He plays this very sort of stoic, buttoned-down guy who lives out in the Australian outback and, and his thing is going around digging wells. He has a little, you know, twiddly rods that he walks around and, ah, here's water. Um, and then he, he builds these wells. He sends his sons off to war in Gallipoli. He inspires them with all this kind of talk of bravery and, you know, nationalism and they're going to be wonderful heroes for their country. And then while the sons are out there, um, they, they are all missing in action. And his wife is heartbroken by this she ends up killing herself and then he's heartbroken too and he vows to go out to Gallipoli and find out what happens to his kids either uh, you know find out where they died on the field of battle or track them down and it is very very old fashioned and there's not a kind of a trace of irony in this you know Russell Crowe striding around dusty landscapes with a spade and with a map and Olga Kurlenko is this kind of doting hotel owner that he meets and kind of supports him in his quest and is a cute little kid as well. I have to say I wasn't wholly sold on it. Um, I, I think other people have possibly enjoyed it more than I did just purely because it felt like such a thing that you know Russell Crowe would see the script imagine himself starring in the film and then think well in that case you know if no one else is going to make this then I have to. Um, but you know, but, it's, not, yeah. it's not without its charm. It's got okay. some little moments in it. It's actually really beautifully shot I think. There's a fantastic little um, 
conflict on a train where he kind of plays cricket with some of the rival soldiers and there's a nice little kind of Australian uh, moment of international friendship there. So it's not all bad. Mm. This might be a good subject actually throughout to our audience and one I want to ask you as well, Robbie, is that whole notion of actors becoming directors and whether there's uh, there's there's baggage attached, whether there's expectation. They have a reputation already as an actor and that's kind of transferred immediately when they start, you know, an approach directing and whether they're given... Whether they're given a kind of fair kind of start, you know, in terms of like the same as they would if it was their first acting role. So, you know, maybe that's something that you guys out there can, uh, can get involved in. You give us good examples or bad examples of actors turned directors. So 85058 or Atwood Entertainment if you if you fancy it. Uh, Leslie on Facebook says, Love the Water Divine, a beautiful and honest, intelligent film. Sean says, It's got some good performances and interesting locations, but it's a real mess of a story. The generally reverent tone is spoiled by the ridiculously supernatural powers of Russell Crowe's character. What on earth was he thinking? There we go. Um, next up then, number six. Yes, Insurgent, which is the second film in the Divergent series of young adult sci-fi, uh, adapted from a series of books. Um, I th- to be honest, the, Insurgent, the, the Divergent series feels to me like a patchwork of other young adult um, books. You know, there's a lot of The Hunger Games in there. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of The Maze Runner in there as well. And I think the, the Hunger Games and The Maze Runner films, are, are, or The Maze Runner film, I should say, the, the, the extra ones are still to come, um, are by and large very well achieved. This just feels very, very copycat. The one redeeming thing about it, though, is uh, Shailene Woodley, who's the lead actress who plays Triss, um, who has been... Uh, she's she's kind of leading the uprising against the, uh, the power structure of this post-apocalyptic society in which people are divided into five groups according to their skills. It's kind of like uh, the person that invented the Krypton Factor was in charge of uh, how the government would run the country. And so, you know, you're either... Um, or the Crystal Maze, you know, you're either yeah. mentally adept, good at <laughs> mysteries, or you're physical or you're mental or something. So everyone's divided up into these different sets. And Triss's kind of uh, thing, she's divergent because she can cut across all of those things. She's multi-skilled. Um, so she leads this uprising. And to see Shailene Moodley in this role, it's kind of like watching Sigourney Weaver in Alien, if Alien had been rubbish, because you can see someone coming as age, coming of age as a film star on screen. Yeah. And that in itself is a very exciting and satisfying thing to watch. You know, you can just watch Shailene Moodley jumping over crates and cocking pistols and you know kind of arguing with people and it's that's all very compelling in itself but the story just adds up to nothing it's hopelessly confused and uh, really really quite disappointing I look forward to the day that Shirley Moodley is kind of done with this franchise and she can kind of move on and, and, and try other things I think she's tied in for two more films one more book but of course it's been this is the last two. book Splinter 2 always every time why do they do that ka-ching uh, then number five we have Get Hard uh, I'm going to do a Facebook comment yes please that's all right before we hear what you have to say about harry says get hard is the best comedy in years i'd put it up there with trading places a true classic of the genre if only people could see the faces in the gallery of people there uh robbie do you know it's interesting that um harry mentioned trading places there because trading places was very funny in its day if you watch trading places again now yeah um a lot of the humor is dated very badly Get Hard could have been made in the same years, places, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and and you know had, had dated just as badly all the time. Instead, it's mysteriously come out in 2015. Uh, basically, you have got Will Ferrell, who's this hedge fund manager, who's going off to prison for fraud. Actually, he didn't commit the fraud, but he's he's going off anyway, and he assumes that his You're just giving uh, a spoiler away. No, no, no. This is all at the start. This is all at the start. But uh, and then he assumes that his uh, car valley, who's played by Kevin Hart. Uh, because he's black, must have had experience of prison. So he asks Kevin Hart to, you know, for, for, for a bit of extra money to, to train him up, to prepare him for prison. 
And it's a kind of a, you know, slightly funny, odd couple concept. But it, what it boils down to is Will Ferrell's character is, is, is very fearful of, and I don't want to, you know, obviously we're talking in the middle of the afternoon, so I don't want to outline exactly what it is he's afraid of in prison. Yeah. He's afraid of a particular type mm-hmm. of assault in prison. Yeah. And uh, the, the whole film is kind of predicated on jokes about this type of assault, how it might happen, how he might avoid it, and how he might kind of, you know, uh, evade that, that, that happening to him. And it is wearing and it is very, very old-fashioned and just embarrassing. Okay. Um, I've not seen it yet. Maybe Don't. I'll see it this weekend. Uh, number four, what I have seen, SpongeBob movie, Sponge Out of Water. I love this. We took uh, three kids, two adults and three kids to see it, and we all were belly laughing. It was just a really fun, silly film. What's really silly is the word. What's really impressive about the SpongeBob movie is that, you know, SpongeBob on TV is portioned out in 10 minutes. You know, yeah. it can only sustain that energy for 10 minutes. You know, how, what do you do once you get to the end of mm. 10 minutes of pure kind of sugar rush, hyperactive, cackling, wide-eyed comedy like that? And the, the film very cleverly just basically switches styles every 10 minutes. It flips into live action. Uh, it flips into CGI that's kind of made to look a bit like stop motion animation. Yeah. Two different hand-drawn animation styles that keeps switching between. It's kind of like you are channel surfing on Cartoon Network or Nickelodeon. Uh, just without actually having to change the channels. You know, the film just flips and flips and flips between jokes. Uh, most of the jokes, I think, really, uh, they work. They, they, they hit home. It's funny. It's lively. I think sometimes when it moves into live action, it has a kind of a slightly seedy veneer that it didn't need to have. A lot of the live action stuff takes place at the, the beach and uh, a lot of the extras seem to have been placed there for dad's benefit if he's taking the kids during the Easter holidays. I don't think that there's necessarily a need for that. You know, the film is kind of engaging on its own terms, but there's fantastic kind of flights into surrealism where you have Matt Berry voicing this dolphin in a cloak who's sort of preventing Jupiter so and Saturn funny. from crashing into each other. And yeah, you know... Uh, Alan say- Carr voicing a seagull. Alan Carr voicing a seagull. Yeah, well, let's move on past that. And, you know, Matt Berry voicing as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's not going to win any prizes for being the, the best animated film of the year, but it has it manages to sustain that SpongeBob energy over the course of 90 minutes, which I think is admirable in and of itself. Well, it's weird because we had the choice of seeing Home or SpongeBob uh, between a six-year-old and a 12-year-old, and they both chose SpongeBob. Yeah, they chose well. Yeah, OK. <laughs> Uh, right, let's move on then. Number three. Yes, yeah, so this home. is Home. Uh, this is the new DreamWorks animation uh, starring Rihanna and it's about an alien invasion. Uh, these kind of shy aliens come to Earth and herd all the, the humans down to Australia, but one of them befriends Rihanna. It, it's a kind of an odd couple comedy and what's interesting about what DreamWorks are doing at the moment is they're kind of, the, the company is in actually financially quite a bad way and they're, they're struggling around to, you know, the films all do well, um, but the, the share price is kind of tailing off and they sort of need uh, another Shrek or another Madagascar or another Kung Fu Panda for people to really yeah. kind of rally behind. And if you look at, um, you know, during awards season, uh, they really kind of spent heavily on adverts for How to Train Your Dragon 2. And it felt like if that had won Best Animated uh, feature at the BAFTAs or at the Oscars, that would have been the kind of rallying call for the company. And they might have sort of, you know, really felt energised and inspired by that. Of course, the Lego movie won Best Animated Feature at the BAFTAs. Quite um, rightly so. Big Hero 6 uh, won Best Animated at the Oscars. So again, DreamWorks are still kind of feel like they're slightly in this doldrums. I don't think Home is the film to necessarily take them out of it. Um, you know, recently they, they did um, The Croods as well, Rise of the Guardians. And it's just films that never kind of quite managed to grasp a hold of what would make their concepts kind of funny and mm. interesting. And I think Home is another one of those. It's, it's, it's actually, it's encouraging 
encouraging to see it do it as well as it is. Yeah. Because hopefully, you know... It's a step towards the right direction. Exactly. But Why the, is The but Guardians the, Just Go Back was a great film. It's one that we keep going back to again and again and again. This is the one with the Russian Santa with the two songs. Yeah. I thought that was awful. Did you? Um, awful. My six-year-old watches it at least once a month. Hugh Jackman is the Easter Bunny. Yeah, I mean, what's not to love about that? Get ice, boys, <laughs> your egg. It's like brilliant. It's perfect. Isn't it? Come on. No. Right, uh, let's move on to number two and Cinderella. I've got a couple of... Uh, I've got one email about this, which I shall, shall get to that yes, first. Yes, please before. do. This is from uh, Jonathan, uh, with Max, who's nine, Poppy, who's seven, and Ellie, who's four, and from Cambodia. Uh, they live in Cambodia, a small town in the northwest of Cambodia, close to the border uh, with Laos. Um, apparently, at the times here, there was a cinema which showed the film made by the then king of Cambodia. These days, we make do with the occasional trip to a cinema in uh, Phnom Phnom Penh and this evening I took my three children to see Cinderella it was quite simply a magical experience not least because of the effect it had on my children to see their joyful responses to the sumptuous landscapes decorous plate palaces or the beauty of Cinderella's dress and glass shoes and laughter at the comedic moments of Rob Brydon on, a flo- on the floor and Helena Bono Carter with face squashed inside a greenhouse and a gooseman declaring itself unfit to drive a carriage to see these things was a precious moment for this father who himself was moved to tears by the simple sweetness of its narrative conclusion I will relish the memory of this moment with my my children thank its director for managing to inform the story with all the charm and jubilance we hear in that endearing laugh of his. Yours, Jonathan, Max, Poppy and Ellie. What a lovely email. You know, I'm really pleased to hear that because with this adaptation of Cinderella, it's very difficult to come to it fresh, you know, if you're familiar with the Disney cartoon, which everyone over a, a certain age is, even though it's made 65 years ago, you know, so it, it's still kind of, when you think of film adaptations of Cinderella, that's the kind of the, the ground zero and any kind of fairy tale films, uh, that have come like Alice in Wonderland and uh, Mirror Mirror or Snow White and the Huntsman, they've all had to kind of put a spin on the original yeah. uh, the original material. Which it's got to be modern and up to date. Exactly. And so at the start of this, where Helena Bonham Carter launches into the Once Upon a Time voiceover, you're kind of sitting there waiting for the ironic aside mm-hmm. or the, you know, the fluffed line or the little crazy joke. Yeah. And it doesn't come. And it just keeps on going, you know, telling the story very beautifully and very, you know, kind of um, straightforwardly. And that is the tone that Kenneth Branagh takes for the whole of the film. And I think for me, it felt very difficult to kind of really warm to it because I had heard the story so many times before. And I think possibly there were occasions at, at which there was there was potential for a little more intimacy and a little more heart that was that, that was missed at the uh, the grand ball, which is, I mean, my word, the, the costumes in this film uh, are, are just kind of uh, you know the, the the real kind of Sistine Chapel of fairy tale movie costumes. Yeah. Ball gowns are phenomenal. The um, the the uh, soldiers' uniforms are phenomenal. But the, so there's this little aside from the ball where Cinderella and Prince Charming uh, go off into a secret garden together and you think okay you know Kenneth Branagh he knows his Shakespeare obviously the secret garden moments are where the characters can fully let down their you know disguises and pretenses and have a straightforward conversation with one another a real serious heart to heart that's removed from reality but actually is reality and it doesn't quite happen and they don't quite have that magical moment of, of, of true connection I felt I mean they do in terms of the fairy tale yeah. but it doesn't feel like you know there's a real true connection between two actors on screen then um, but you know that aside, you know, it's, 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 it looks fabulous. Kate Blanchett is terrific as a wicked stepmother, you know, wearing these kind of uh, 
you know, golden age of Hollywood ball gowns, just look, looks tremendous. She's very spiky. She wears a, a leopard print um, dressing gown at one point, which is the best leopard print dressing gown I think I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. Um, you know, it, I think Lily's great as Cinderella. And, Lily James and is really I also good think well. that Richard Madden as Prince Charming is, 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 is Mr. Kit is, is great. And the relationship between, and the tone between him and his dad. Uh, but yes, now that's the big surprise. Derek Jacobi well. again. You Gorgeous. see Derek Jacobi coming on on stage with his hair and his beard, and you think, okay, here we are, Derek Jacobi going to have a bit of fun, as he has been doing on film uh, quite a lot recently. And he plays it very straight. And there's a beautiful little memento mori where the two are talking to each other. Uh, Mr. Kit is worried about his father uh, aging, getting older. He's not well. And uh, Derek Jacobi turns to him and says, "We have all flesh, son." And there's just that lovely little moment, you know, yeah. um, of uh, that really is, the, I think, the relationship that, that rings the most true and the most human in the mm. whole film. But it's nice to hear that kids are responding to it well. Yeah, and Kenneth Branagh, actor turned director. There we go. It's another one. Yeah. Uh, and the number one spot then, Fast and Furious 7. So many people getting in touch about this, but Robbie, you can kick it off. Yes, well, look, I, I never in my life expected to cry at a Fast and Furious what? film. Now... This is, of course, this is the last Fast and Furious film in which Paul Walker will feature. Yeah. You know, he died during filming. And um, this presented uh, the film with, I mean, with, with, with two very, very separate but interlinked challenges. One of them was, was somehow making sense of the film, you know, what they had shot, how they could actually edit that together into a coherent mm. story. And the other one was somehow paying tribute to Paul Walker in the film because, you know, he is an actor who is inextricable from the Fast and Furious franchise. He's someone who most of us, I think, saw for the first time in the original film, which was... I mean, I don't even want to think how long ago Fast it's and not, Furious was. Let's put an age on it. Um, year but, on it. But, you know, that's how, you know, he is one of these performers who just looks great behind the wheel of a car. And that's a strange skill to, 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 to need, but it's one that's essential in, in, in cinema. And he was always very good at that. And the, the, the idea of the series going forward without him is actually quite tough to take. All I can say is, without giving anything away, the way in which they have rounded that plot line off and that they have memorialised him and paid tribute to him at the end of the film is incredibly moving and incredibly subtle and incredibly special. And these are words that I never thought I would use to describe <laughs> a Fast and the Furious film, but here we are. You have, it's on record, and people have just <laughs> watched you say that. Um, this is a great email that, uh, for reasons that will become obvious, please don't use my name in this letter. Uh, I recently saw the Fast and Furious with a number of young men from where I work in an under-18s detention centre. Uh, they absolutely love the franchise. All have seen all the movies many times. What I think is most relevant about the movie was what they got out of it. Most of the lads have no adult male role models in their immediate families. Many do not know their fathers. This may or may not be tragic. It is what it is. In the Fast and Furious uh, films, their genuine exploration of family, of family responsibility and family loyalty, these guys responded to this with open hearts, viewing it as a modern morality fable that they could connect with. The multiracial cast, the gender equality and role of a father all challenged these young men in a way that most well-meaning movies can't. Of course, the body glorification stuff was troublesome, as was the violence. However, the film still started a conversation and that's good surely p.s as we left the cinema one lad commented about the last scene we bring a tear to a glass eye what a great email thank you for sharing that uh, craig says on email and another one says despite somewhat lacking in such things as logic intelligence and the laws of gravity fast seven is wonderfully entertaining yes it has jason statham's terminator-esque bad guy continually finding the fast team around the world without explanation the worst product placement since casino royale and a beyond ludicrous plot, but this is an all-guns-blazing, audacious two hours of fun with likeable lead characters, creative, imaginative stunt work, and then there is that ending. 
After all the non-stop and subtle carnage, the finale of Fast 7 is a tribute to the late Paul Walker. It is a poignant, graceful and elegant piece of cinema as you could ever wish to see. Poignant, graceful and elegant. elegant. There you go. Fast 7. Who would have thought it? And I love that the Fast and the Furious films have come by this organically as well. They've not been sort of taken away uh, and, and uh, you know, put in front of a focus group and said, OK, yeah. how do we appeal to all these people? What they've done is they've just kind of tumbled around the world and they've picked up new cast members with every uh, episode in the franchise. Yes. And it has become this family uh, thing completely organically. Now, I'm not going to make any claims that Fast and Furious films are sort of blockbuster masterpieces. I have to say, broadly speaking, I prefer the idea of the films to the way in which they're executed. I do think they can be very confusing and and, 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 and overlong at times. And it would be nice, you know, James Wan, the, the, the director of this seventh film, I wondered if possibly, uh, you know, because he's come from a horror background, he did Insidious and he did the first Saw film, if he might bring this kind of Roger Corman-esque leanness to the project. And he hasn't done, he's just kind of, you know, yeah. stretched out to fill the space. Um, but that aside, you know, it's worked well. Brilliant. Coming up to 20 to 3 on Friday afternoon, Edith and Robbie in for Simon and Mark. In a moment, my conversation with Keanu Reeves, whose new film, John Wick, is out today. Uh, first though, Robbie, let's find out your thoughts on John Wick after we've uh, heard from Keanu, but in a nutshell, what's the film about? In a nutshell, mm-hmm. well, John Wick is a name that will not mean very much to you uh, if you've not seen the film already. And I love the fact that John Wick is a revenge movie, but they've not used a title like Taken or Death Wish. It's yeah. just John Wick. So you go into this film wondering exactly who John Wick is. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, I, I don't want to kind of give away quite too much yet because I'm sure Keanu, uh, he, he explains it uh, very well in the interview. Uh, but what you have is a guy who is uh, very recently bereaved. Um, and he is, when we meet him first, he's waking up at home uh, on the day of his wife's funeral. And uh, the home is very glamorous and very, uh, you know, uh, subtly and beautifully decorated. And we're wondering, well, what on earth could this guy have done in his life uh, to secure this wonderful home? And he he doesn't seem to have a job either. He seems to be kind of aimless during the day as well. But he goes to his wife's funeral and uh, then that evening uh, uh, there's a ring at the doorbell and there is uh, a little puppy dog uh, has been delivered. And it's a parting gift uh, from his wife to him, someone else to love now that she's gone. And uh, he's out for a drive with the dog one day and these Russian gangsters see his car, which is uh, this very stylish uh, 1969 Ford Mustang. And they take a liking to the car uh, and they say, um, can we buy it from you? And he says, sorry, the car is not for sale. He wakes up that night uh, to find his house has been broken into. Uh, the same Russian gangsters are there and they steal the car and they kill his dog. And that's a horrible thing to do. And at that point, you you just wish that something nasty will happen to these awful, awful men who have done this thing. And because they've done it to John Wick, it does. And here's a clip of John Wick explaining just how annoyed he is. When Ellen died, I lost everything. Until that dog arrived on my doorstep. A final gift for my wife. In that moment, I received some semblance of hope. An opportunity to grieve on the law. And your son took that from me. Stole that from me. Killed that from me! People keep asking if I'm back. And I haven't really had an answer. But now, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. And that was a clip from John Wick. It's my pleasure to be joined by the star of the film, Keanu Reeves. How are you, sir? I'm well, I'm well. Good morning. Good morning. I um, I had a great experience watching your film in a cinema with a crowd of people oh, cool. the other day. Um, and there's just so many things I want to ask you about the film, but I'd like to start, if that's OK, by asking you to describe John Wick to me. How, how do you describe him? Who is he? 
Uh, let's see, let's see. Uh, John Wick uh, used to be an assassin uh, who's described in the picture not as the boogeyman, but as the man you would call to go after the boogeyman. So he's a kind of mythic guy. Mm. He's past. Um, when we find the character, his uh, wife is ill and eventually passes. Um, we come to learn that he's gone away from the dark life, the underworld, um, in order to have this relationship, to have, you know, um, for love. Um, and so he's a, yeah, so he's a guy with a, with a past and, um, who's just trying to, you know, live, live in the light. But <laughs> circumstances happen that, uh, his dark side kind of literally becomes unearthed and, yeah. uh, um, and in a way, John Wick has, you know, this real world tone to it. And then there's this layer of the underworld, which is yeah. kind of very sartorial and has its own, you know, codes and ethics and rules, which is kind of um, mediated by the wonderful Ian McShane. Genius piece of casting. He's so fantastic. Brilliant piece of casting. Yeah. I almost cheered when he came up on the oh, screen. He's, he's so fantastic. <laughs> the tone <clears throat> of the film is perfect. Um, was that something that was on in the script? Was that immediate when you read the script? Um, yeah, absolutely. And and really uh, heightened by the directors, Chad Stahelski and David Leach. It's their first film. Mm. Um, but uh, I'm glad you like it. I mean, it was certainly what drew them to the material and drew me to the material. Because um, there's a kind of humor in it as yeah. well. You know, so there's some cool action. uh Humor and uh, emotion. Am I right in thinking that you took the script to, to Chad and David kind of in the back of your head hoping they'd go, we'd love to direct this? Is that, is that how it happened? Yeah, it was, uh, I, knew, I know Chad Stahelski. He was, um, I met him as a stuntman. Uh, he Matrix, doubled me yeah. in The Matrix, yeah. And uh, then I met David because uh, they've been friends since they were like 17 uh, in the martial arts world before they got into stunts. Um, and uh, we kept in touch, and they've been doing second unit directing for the past, you know, decade. Yeah. Um, so it's their first film, but not really their first film. So I went to them. They have their own action design company, stunt company, called 8711. Um, so originally I was thinking, well, I send it to them in the, you know, like, would you guys do the action for this? But as you say, I was secretly hoping that they would respond to the material <laughs> and they did and they did yes it feels like as well for you um i mean the 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 stunt sequences are they look immensely complicated but they're beautiful and they're kind of you feel like it's dancing almost it's oh, cool they um you know you kind of expect with that kind of for it to be sharp and quick edits and it's mm. not it's allowed to play out and allowed to happen um that must be more work for you, was it? What was the preparation of the um, reality? Yes, that? it's inside baseball. <laughs> you know your game. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah to do longer takes. Um, uh, it, and it is a dance. I mean, it's not only a dance in terms of the choreography, but also with the other stuntmen or other um, creatives that you're working with, uh, and then the dance with the camera. Uh, so all of those pieces have to kind of come together. And, and when you do longer takes, um, yeah, it's, it's trickier, yeah. you know, to keep that dance together, to hit the right spots, to have the timing. Um, but, yeah, it's cool. I mean, it's, I'm glad you like it. I mean, it's, it's fun when something that takes that effort that looks so simple and, you know, and hopefully that there was some grace to it and uh, aesthetic 
you know, it is to 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 find in violence. <laughs> exactly to find grace <laughs> and <Moving> violence. <laughs> to kind of find grace and beauty though within kind of that world is not always easy to achieve, and mm. you know that's that's down to you, but also I think down to Chad and David and how they chose to film it and yeah. to colour it and edit it. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, we had a wonderful cinematographer, Jonathan Sella, and uh, um, an editor, Elizabeth. And um, But yeah, it, it does, the vision comes through them. And, uh, you know, I think with their stunt background and having shot so much action that they, for me, it was a great, to, you know, to, to try and have that ambition of longer takes and, and so they knew me, they know what I can do, can't do. Um, and they put me in situations to uh, hopefully, you know, do a good job. Didn't make it too easy for you, I hope. Absolutely. <laughs> insert swearing here, not. <laughs> That's because they know you so well. They know they can push you to your limits, possibly. Yeah, God bless them. <laughs> no, you know, I, I like that stuff. I mean, I like, I like action and I like, I like dramatic action. You know, mm. I like the, you know, because action can help... You know, it's a it's a character piece, right? Mm. It's it's especially in this picture, it's about the will and you know what he's fighting against and fighting for and what's in his way mm. and you know all that fun stuff. And then we have this brilliant kind of world within the the hotel, the Continental. And I love those moments where, you know, he he kind of turns up where he kind of can't move his arm and he's dripping in blood and the kind of ding and the elevator music playing in the background <laughs> and stuff. And it's just, it, you know, there is a kind of graphic novel element to it as well Absolutely. which is, yeah. is is kind of it it gives you a kind of ah yeah we're, we're in this is the you're in a movie <laughs> yeah. yeah no because it objectifies it i mean there's a little bit of a wink to it you know there's uh um if you want to see it that way but mm. uh, definitely you know the lensing uh has a graphic novel aspect to it um you know which are just you know different kinds of perspectives mm. not necessarily naturalistic mm. um uh, but that's, you know, I love acting. That's fun. I mean, I like those kinds of films, you know. Um, because you came into this after directing your first feature, mm -hmm. um, did you have to kind of like, I don't know, hold back from from making your opinion? <laughs> Bite my tongue? Yeah, basically. I wouldn't do it that way. <laughs> well, if you want to do it that way, go ahead. But I would Hmm, interesting choice, Someone Chad. send him back to his trailer. Right? Uh, <laughs> Absolutely not, no. Uh, um, you know, it was it was cool though. I mean, they they Chad and Dave did ask me a couple of times some things like, mm. "What what is this?" You know, an example would have been, I was like, "So you guys should do a table read," and they were like, "Yeah," and they were like, well, "What's a table read?" and "What do we do here?" and I'm like, "Okay, so you get scripts and pencils and pads, you bring everyone together." You make a speech, you say hello to everyone, you welcome everyone to the table, and then you read the script, and you'll hear things, and, you're, and they're like, right. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but... Uh, I have a great image in my head. Yeah, of, of yeah, they're like, okay. And, 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 and they, they were wonderful with the actors, and, and uh, you know, I mean, just with the cast that they got, and, and just on the floor... Um, so I, I didn't have to, uh, there were, you know, a couple of things in the post that I was like, you know, you should, you know, watch your film once in a while on the mm. big screen because when you're looking at it small and you're cutting, you might see some other things. It'll change the rhythm, you know, because we're making cinema, <laughs> not a TV show. 
And we're getting more of it, I hear, as well. There's going to be more. Um, you know, hopefully, you know, people have, some people have enjoyed the film mm. and the producers uh, are interested in uh, trying to do it again. But not, we don't want to do it again. You know, we want to, if we can find the right story, you know, and, and we've been working on that for the past uh, couple of months. Yeah. Do you think that, You've got this amazing body of work that you've you've done over the years. Do you think this is a character you could have done 20 years ago? Or do you think it's kind of a combination of your experience but also the, you know, the character's got this experience as well within him? Yeah, yeah. there's a little hard-boiled older guy vibe, I guess, to it. Um, I don't know. I think Constantine was kind of like that guy a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a little Constantine in there. Um but certainly, uh, the attempt at gravitas, uh, <laughs> I certainly didn't have um, back then. Mm. It's, um, I mean, we're, we're excited as well, you know, as film fans, what, what's next as well for you? You have a huge list of, of projects that, mm. that we're waiting for. What's the, um, is there a specific or particular project that you're excited for us film fans and Keanu fans to, to see next? Um, well, that's kind of you. Uh, you know, I got to work with Eli Roth on a picture called Knock Knock, Knock, Knock yeah. which is a uh, um, home invasion, psychological terror romp. <laughs> uh, which I heard was, there is some romping going on in it. There is words. definitely yeah. some rom-pom-pom. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a father, an architect, a lone home for the weekend, working late through the rain, and late at night, there's a knock-knock, and it's two young girls who are dressed to go out. And, excuse me, sir, we're lost and wet. And help us. <laughs> Will you help us, kind sir? And I'm, yes, and I'm a good guy, and I say yes. <laughs> and then things start to turn. I can't wait for that one. Yeah. I can't wait. Well, you know, they kind of seduce me, and then I say yes again. And well- then in the morning... <laughs> The tables are turned. The tables are turned and the punishment begins. What what makes you say yes as an actor though to a project? What are you looking for? What are you what are you you know? Yeah, I, you I start achieve? with the the story actually. Mm. You know, so what's the story? What's um and then the character? Uh what's it all about? What mm. are we doing? Um and finally, um we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't ask you about Bill and Ted. Bill and Ted. Is Bill and Ted... Do people like Bill and Ted? Oh, my Ted God. Come the, on. Are you serious? Still? No. Come on. Yes. Seriously. No. Did yeah, they? Come on. Really? Like, from whatever I mean, I, as a child... We were 90s? just... I mean, you know, bodacious and all that stuff. Really? Is, is, I mean, it was quoted throughout school for me. It was my life. It was... You know, I was a girl as well, <laughs> and I still wanted to be, you know, in that film and part of that world. Really? So there's a whole cool. generation of people that are now spread in the world to the new generation. Trying to be excellent to each other. <laughs> right. And party on. Is it yeah. going to happen? Um, I mean, I've heard, I've heard Alex kind of, you know, well, talk about it. I think it's cool it. that you like it. Thank you. Uh, um, yeah, we're trying. We're trying. The, uh, the writers wrote a script, um, which is really good. And uh, so now we're just trying to convince someone to, to give us money to make it. Yeah. I think you'll be fine after more people see this, which they're definitely going to. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Kenny, thank you so much for your time. All right, Lovely you. chat Cheers. to you. Thanks a lot. He was so much fun to chat to. I'd, a gentleman. I had no idea what he was going to be like. I've never interviewed him before, but he was a lot of fun. I liked him go rum, pom, pom. I'm going to have, I'm going to clip that up and use that it's for my ringtone. moment. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 
Um, what did you think of the film? Look, I think this is... John Wick is an immensely satisfying film for many, many reasons, but not least of all because it restores Keanu Reeves uh, to this position of movie star, which he, he of course, uh, deserves. You know, there's, there's, In recent years, it's become, become a sort of accepted thing to say, well, Keanu Reeves can't really act. And it's just a load of rubbish. You, yeah. know, you have to look back at his early stuff, like My Own Private Idaho. To yes. He's a tremendous actor. But what he is, uh, above and beyond that, really, is a great movie star. And, you know, in films like Point Break and uh, Speed and The Matrix, he has this kind of unreadable quality that makes you want to look at him and he's incredibly his face is just looks great on a on, on a big screen he has that uh, incredible kind of knife-like jawline and these kind of uh, very probing eyes and the the, the hair that great he hangs for and i don't want to sound like i'm you know romantically in love with the man yeah. even though maybe i am just a little bit but your he, voice even went there <laughs> but he has this presence and, and to see him restored into this kind of iconic role uh, on a film that is legitimately wonderful is, is, is very very satisfying indeed now look john wick is it's different from normal revenge movies, even though it's being kind of loosely grouped with those, because the reason for the revenge is so kind of elemental that it's almost absurd. I mean, he's chasing down these bad guys and tearing New York City apart because they killed his dog. You know, so it's not some question of honour like it isn't taken, you know, this father defending yeah. his daughter on death wish, you know, kind of similar thing. Um, it's, it's kind of, it's absurd and it's kind of very, very basic and very straightforward. But the start of the film in which the dog dies is played completely straight and you know uh, Keanu Reeves is somebody who's very good at showing uh, grief and at showing being being embattled and just wanting to kind of hunker down against the world and so the first the opening scene of it if you go in expecting a straightforward action film you'll be surprised I think because it just takes its time to set the story up and to allow you to get fully on side with this guy so that when bad things happen to him you are completely willing him to you know go back to the assassin life, break out the old kit from the uh, from the basement and, and, and chase these guys down. Now, what works so well about it? There's, uh, the, 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 the mood of the setting, you know, it's a New York film and it has that kind of uh, Sydney Lumet kind of grit about it. You know, there's signs up for Peter Luger Steakhouse, you yeah. know, dark alleyways, neon washing across pavements like Taxi Driver. You know, you really feel as if you're in New York. Often yeah. New York films can feel like, you know, they could have been shot anywhere and often they are shot anywhere, but this is a very, very New York film. There's also this idea uh, that there is a criminal underworld which isn't laboured but it's its own little separate economy mm. they all they use gold coins to uh, as their own currency uh, there's this hotel called the continental where you check in you're not allowed to conduct business on the, the continental's ground so it's kind of like if you're playing tig or british bulldogs it's like then you know if you run <laughs> yeah. the continental you're safe it's okay yeah. until you take a step out the door and then all hell breaks loose so you've got that fantastic kind of concept in it as well but it doesn't labour it but on top of all that is is the style in which it's been made now this mm. this is he was kind of hinting at this in the film but uh john Wick, rather than being a straightforward revenge film, actually falls into a completely different filmmaking tradition. And uh, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Hong Kong action cinema of the 1980s. A bit. So you've got films like uh, City on Fire by Ringo Lam and A Better Tomorrow by John Woo, uh, made in the kind of mid-80s, uh, where they're about kind of balletic gunplay, you know, gunplay combined with martial arts, big kind of strongly felt emotions, smart suits, you know, anguish. And um, this idea that men can kind of, you know, bad men who still operate by a very strict moral cause can just take punishment after punishment upon themselves and kind of strive through at the, at the end of the day and, 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 and make it through against all of these uh, obstacles. John Wick is a heroic bloodshed film. And what that means is it has that very particular look of the, uh, you know, that, that was kind of borrowed on by The Matrix and also by John Woo's films that he did for Hollywood, you know, things like... Uh, uh, Mission Impossible 2 yeah. and uh, Face Off. Uh, he kind of sort, sort of brought that, but, but John, John Wick is a more direct and straightforward expression of that style. And 
And the, the perfect example of this is in when the bad guys uh, come to John Wick's house the first time he's taken by surprise, they come back to finish him off when they realise just how, uh, you know, how disastrous it will be if he gets out on the streets and, and uh, you know, gets the upper hand. And so there's this brawl in his house where he's kind of dispatching all these guys very, very elegantly. And the camera, we're used to in action films, the camera being a participant in action scenes, yeah. getting in close, you know, whirling around, mm-hmm. fast cuts, jerky, where, what's going on? Don't know, it's confusing. But the camera in John Wick just kind of stands back like in a Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly dance film and it just watches what's going on and the choreography the action choreography is good enough and strong enough uh, for this to look great and there's a scene where they're scrapping in a corridor and the camera just looks at them and it tracks in very slowly it starts off back here ends up right in John Wick's face when he delivers the the killer blow and it's just incredibly exciting there's just no it doesn't seem to be any rush to get do you know what I mean? Everything is allowed to play out and allowed to. Exactly. It's almost like watching like a, a, the Royal Ballet do a Tarantino film in place. Yes, you know what I mean, and the, like the choreography a, in the there's a nightclub centerpiece that you talked about oh, slightly yes. in, the, in the interview. The choreography in that's terrific because you've got Keanu Reeves at one point. He uh, he he runs out of uh, ammo. Um, so rather than kind of uh, put himself at risk, he reaches out, tightens the guy's tie in front of him. So he's kind of struggling with his tie around his neck while he very calmly reloads his pistol until he's kind of <laughs> in a position to dispatch him uh, more permanently. And the rhythm of it is perfect. And it's just one of these things that you can kind of, you know, action films like this, they're the kind of films that you want to rush out of the cinema and tell your friends to see. But you also want to rush out and tell people who want to make action films to see this as well. Yeah. To know that there's a different path you can go down. You know, you don't have to imitate Paul Greengrass, who does that very well in the Bourne films. You know, that up close, personal, you're part of the, uh, the, the, the kind of the panic and the chaos. Yeah. But you don't have to do it like that. You can look to a different country, you know, in this case, Hong Kong. You can look to a different time period uh, and, and draw on that and copy that. Uh, thanks to all your correspondence that's been coming in today. It's been brilliant. We'll do um, TV movie after. 3.30 as well today so uh, get your thinking caps on for that uh, Mike in Nottingham thank you very much for your email uh, I wasn't expecting to see you two today looking sharp in the salmon blazer Robbie I have to say that the blazer, go, is it salmon or is it well it's red, red. it's red um, there's a bit of a debate going on on Twitter and there are more important things to debate about on Twitter than the colour of Robbie's jacket are there though there are, are there? I'm afraid to say there are but I would like to point out I'm in the room with him and it's red speckled that's what I would refer it as. Am I correct? Yeah, I would go with that. Yeah. Anyway, he does go into more detail in his email about something related to the show. I went to an IMAX show on a Fast and Furious 7 with a couple of friends last night, giddy with excitement, only partially dampened by the inflated IMAX prices at Cineworld. Due to the unspoken promise, the trailers made to step up the action to literally unbelievable levels. For the record, the film makes good on this promise and seems to be very aware of how ridiculous it is, which only serves to make it more enjoyable. I laughed the whole way through, right up until the genuinely moving last five minutes, which paid tribute to Paul Walker. Whether or not you're a fan of the franchise, he was certainly perfectly cast as Brian O'Connor, and he will be missed. Mike in Nottingham, thank you very much indeed for your email. Uh, Loads of you as well getting involved in our discussion on actors turned directors. Emily's already mentioned Clint Eastwood. Uh, On Twitter, Alonzo says, despite what you might think of Kevin Costner, Dances with Wolves, it's a triumph. Ultimate actor turned director though, Clint. Uh, Dathai says Charles Lawton, uh, which I, he, hunter, uh, yeah, which he had directed more than one though. He did. He was he, he was in the Man in the, in the Eiffel Tower as well, was he not? As well. Oh, as no, he was in. I mean, Charles Lawton was a. I mean, he was a, a very busy actor. Yeah, in his but, day, but, but him what, directing he, he directed too, Night though. of the Hunter, and it was incredibly badly received at the time yeah. by critics and by audiences. And he never got a chance to direct another film. It has 
oddly enough, quite a lot in common with Lost River. In the oh, really? It's a dark fairy tale, I would describe <laughs> it as. It, in turn, influenced David Lynch very heavily. It was people like David Lynch that kind of uh, restored Night of Hunter's reputation, really. But I would urge anyone to, to, you know, who wants to see a kind of a very strange one-off film set in a kind of a creepy little kind of American backwater, mm. uh, you know, look for a Night of the Hunter. It's, okay. it's really terrific. Uh, Emma says, good examples, George Clooney, good night and good luck. Um, Matt says good but underrated Bill Paxton Frailty was a great horror movie wish he directed more it was Frailty was a terrific there you go uh, well keep me coming in you can get in touch on email mail at bbc.co.uk twitter at wittertainment or you can text us 85058 in fact next week on the show Alan Rickman's going to be live in the studio talking about his directorial debut is that a little it's his second, second I think yeah, yeah. Uh, a little chaos so uh, there we go but keep that conversation going shall we talk about Paul Blart Mall Cop. I have to say it's so slow too. Paul Blart Mall Cop. It just comes like that. If I say fast, it has been six years since the original Paul Blart Mall Cop. The classic. And I mean, you know, I've been scratching the days on my bedroom wall with a penknife. They've decided now is the time to bring back Paul Blart Mall Cop, uh, (laughs) character played by Kevin James, uh, who is a security guard in a shopping centre who rides a Segway around. And has a very overinflated sense of his own importance. And that was the joke six years ago. And uh, as this clip illustrates, uh, when he takes a trip to Las Vegas to a security guards convention, it's still very much the joke now. Pablo? Yes, sir. I thought that was you. Donna Eric Cohn. Mall of America. Man, we still talk about your Black Friday save. Thank you. I don't know if you heard. There's going to be a surprise keynote speaker tonight. Word on the street? is going to be the officer who's going above and beyond the call of duty. What? I got to be honest, I, I had a feeling, but did you really think that? I mean... Who else? Yeah. Unless RoboCop walks into the room? Yeah, I would definitely stand down for RoboCop. He's not real. No, I know he's not real, but I'm, I would stand down for him. He ain't real. Just don't tell anybody I told you. you told me what? About the key. You got me. You done gone and got me. <laughs> oh, he's in the throat. See you tonight. Yeah. So you've you've heard of the <laughs> saying: if you don't have anything nice to say, you don't say anything at all. Yeah. Oh, come on, we've got another th- okay, forty-eight okay. minutes to be on here. Uh, I saw this film this morning. It wasn't screened for uh, critics, so I went to the uh, uh, View Cinema and um, you know paid, paid money. Sat down. There was at first no. There was a family walked in about five minutes into the film. Uh, we were the only people there. They did actually stay and I did hear one laugh. You know, one of the fascinating things about seeing films uh, that aren't screened for critics is that you see them with an audience that actually genuinely... Real people, Robbie. First thing on a Friday morning, (laughs) the hardcore Paul Blart Mall Cop fan base were out in force and that was one dad and two kids and they did laugh once. Um... It's what, what's very strange about this is, you know, I, I remember going into the cinema and, you know, paying for tickets, sitting down. And then I remember coming out of the cinema and in between there is this kind of, uh, you know, two hour period of nothingness. And I just, you know, it's, it's, it's not that you can't say anything nice about the film, but it's, it's very difficult to say anything at all about the film. You know, it's like you've kind of gone in for a hamburger and then come up with a mouthful of sawdust. I mean, it's just oh, totally dear. kind of ersatz, non-film. Um, Paul Black Mall Cop at the end of the last film was happily married 
and they have to wipe the slate clean at the start of this. So we find out that his wife left him after six days mm-hmm. and uh, his mother also got run over by a milk float. And I, I'll admit I did laugh at that. That was quite a funny um, sight gag. But anyway, he's, he's back by himself with his teenage daughter and he's invited to uh, this security uh, guards convention in Las Vegas, Nevada. And his daughter, at the same time, is also, she finds out that she's got this uh, hotshot degree course that she's been trying to get onto. Yeah. But Paul Bart Mallcop is very afraid of uh, being alone in life. You know, she, her daughter is the only person that Paul Bart Mallcop has left. And so he, she decides that she can't tell him about this. So she keeps the secret and they go, off they go to Las Vegas together. And this kind of uh, sense of loneliness and aimlessness kind of sets up the general mood of gnawing despair that hangs over the rest of the film. You know, this is a film about Paul Bart Mallcop being very worried about being left alone and his daughter leaving him. And it makes you wonder, is this really aimed at children? Or it kind of feels like it's, it's, it's more a film that's, uh, that's aimed at adults with a, a mental age of six. Because the, the kind of jokes that it has, which is Kevin James sort of falling over things and uh, doing forward roles, uh, tripping up, being run over by cars. He's attacked by an emu at one stage. And it, 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 it's stuff that is all kind of lowest common denominator shtick. But I don't really see why kids are supposed to be interested uh, in Paul Black Mall Cop. Uh, when they arrive at the casino, of course, there's this kind of legendary German art thief as checks in at the same time with his crew. And he goes about this big art heist, stealing all the uh, priceless Van Goghs or Van Goghs from the casino that are hanging on the walls. Uh, the casino, by the way, even though it does have its own security team, uh, is pretty much deserted. And there's these kind of weird echoey corridors where art thieves can just kind of wander around and unhook, you know, sunflowers uh, from the wall and tuck it into, tuck it into a box the and walk pot. away. Um, the start of the film is very concerned about Paul Bart Mallcop's daughter and she kind of starts falling in love with this waiter at the casino. They uh, go off together and, you know, they, they spend some time by the pool while Paul Bart Mallcop worries about them. And then they go to a party together while Paul Bart Mallcop gets very worried as well. Then they get arrested, uh, not arrested, rather kidnapped uh, yeah. as hostages by the art thief. And then the second half of the film becomes this Home Alone style uh, you know, adventure where Paul Bart Mallcop is walking around the casino, uh, you know, firing all these uh, great security guard inventions that he found at the expo, like glue guns, superpowered segways and all this kind of stuff yeah. uh, to, to, to save his daughter. And um, it's just, what's strange about it is that the film is predicated, as I said, on, on physical comedy. You know, Kevin James as a physical comedian. He may be a very talented physical comedian. I don't know his work outside of Paul Blart Mallcop, the two films. I love and the fact that every time you refer to him as Paul Blart, you don't just see Paul Blart, you see Paul Blart That's Mall his Cop. name, it's Paul Blart Mallcop. <laughs> Paul Blart Mallcop is his name. Paul Blart Mallcop passport. And so... <laughs> So they uh, so anyway sorry I was going to say so, so yeah so sorry. it's based on phys- uh, Kevin James's physical comedy yeah. I gather King of Queens is a very good TV show and, yeah which uh, he writes as well and he's funny. written this but Paul Black Mallcop doesn't play to his strengths at all and what's odd about it is a lot of the physical comedy is augmented by computer graphics for example there's a scene in which Paul Black Mallcop is kicked by a horse into a car and the horse is CGI. And the car is CGI and Paul Black Mallcop is CGI. And you're watching it thinking, this isn't slapstick. Uh, this is a cut scene. You know, this yeah, isn't yeah, yeah, real. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. this is the problem with the film. As I say, a burger made of sawdust, you know, yeah. chips made of snipped up bath sponge, yeah. you know, Coca-Cola made of grouting. It's just, it's not real. It's not a real film. It's not real entertainment. It's not, you know, it's not real kind of nourishment. It's not real entertainment. It's, it's just nothing. It's a big nothing film. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't have high hopes for Paul Black Mallcop 2, but it, it's really kind of... Uh, sailed really far under those well let's zone. wait and see if they get Paul Black Mall Cup 3 off the ground um, just purely so that I can do the show with you when it's released so you can say Paul Black Mall Cup oh, wait, that was amazing I can only manage to say it so many times as well I can't say it Paul once there we go okay enough 
Um, let's talk about, should we do women in gold? Yes, why don't we as a kind of a change of pace? Yeah. Because then we'll, then we'll get to Hot Tub Time Machine 2 later. Women in Gold is the new film from Simon Curtis, who is the director of My Week with Marilyn. And he also did okay. a long time ago, I was horrified to see how long ago this was, 1999, he did a TV version of David Copperfield with Daniel Radcliffe, which was just completely terrific. It was, I think, it, it was stretched over four nights and it was a kind of a, one of these big Christmas yeah. costume drama spectacular. It was very, very well directed. So Simon Curtis's involvement in this is interesting, but it is less important than the involvement of Bob and Harvey Weinstein. The Weinstein Company, of course, these incredibly uh, shrewd players in the American award circuit cinema game. Yeah. And they will kind of spot trends in films that are doing well and that, you know, play well with audiences and uh, get nominated for awards and commission more films like them because they, you know, they're like blackjack players. You know, they, they, they feel that the table is hot yeah. and they want to keep playing. Now, Woman in Gold is very, very, very like a film uh, called Philomena. Um, yeah, I was got, that's what I said from, yes. this morning. It was Philomena or it was the love child of the Queen and the Thomas Crown affair. It's just that's too clever. That's giving it too much credit. It is okay. just Philomena done again. You've got this uh, it's a very middle brow drama with a combination of an older woman and a younger man, platonic odd couple. It's a true story. It's based on historical injustice being set right uh, on this uh, globe trotting adventure. Now the historical injustice involves a famous painting by an artist called Gustav Klimt. The painting is a portrait of Adele Blochbauer. And, I mean, it's known as the woman in gold because she's mm. kind of swathed in gold leaf. And in the opening scene, we see this painting being painted. That painting was, it fell into the hands of the Nazis during the Second World War and ended up on the wall of a museum in Vienna. And Helen Mirren, who plays the descendant of the lady who posed for the painting, wants to get it back. And here she is enlisting the help of Ryan Reynolds' uh, lawyer. My aunt, Adele. My uncle commissioned Gustav Klimt to paint her. That's quite a painting. It's magnificent. She was taken off the walls of our home by the Nazis. And since then, she's been hanging in the Belvedere Gallery in Vienna. And now you'd like to be reunited. Wouldn't that be lovely? Make you a rich woman, I'm sure. Do you think that's what this is about? No, I have to do what I can to keep these memories alive. Because people forget, you see. Especially the young. And then, of course, there's justice. Helen Murren there. There we are. And now, so this is, you can see this Philomena-like uh, setup. And although it ticks so many boxes, as, as we said, you know, it is this kind of drama, odd couple, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't work in many ways that Philomena does work because Philomena, you had that fantastic thing of the false kindness of the Catholic Church in Ireland where they were trying to, you know, they thought they were being helpful, but not. You had that really interesting performance from Steve Coogan, like nothing that he's done. And Judy Dench, who we, we know, you know, what it's Judy funny. Dench can do, <laughs> but she's funny and she's, you know, she's kind of on peak form there. And also what Philomena did, which I completely love, is that it never gave either character the upper hand over the other for, for too long. You know, yeah. uh, Steve Coogan was the, played the sceptic, the doubter, uh, and, and Judy Dench played this kind of woman of faith and it didn't ever say you know one of these uh credos is the right way to go it kind of let that play um women in gold just doesn't do that at all the austrians who are trying to protect the painting are i mean effectively really in quite bad taste i thought portrayed as the descendants of the nazis you know kind of strutting around we will keep this painting at all costs all costs yeah. Yeah. and they don't entertain any possibility that it should perhaps go back to her but by the same token helen mirren's character doesn't entertain the, the idea that you know, maybe this painting kind of belongs to the public and it should be seen. You know, she obviously says she doesn't just want it for money. She wants it to set 
get this historical injustice right. Mm. But there's never a sense in which her own beliefs are being challenged or Ryan Reynolds. And by the way, his lawyer character has this pregnant wife played by Katie Holmes, who kind of sits at home and is happy to see him give up his hotshot LA lawyer's job in order to pursue this. And then, you know, when he's feeling down, say, no, you know, go for it. We've got a mortgage. We've got another kid on the way. But never mind that, you know, you can save this woman's painting. And it just doesn't ring true. You know, it's beige, 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 beige. Even like the, the, it, with the comparisons to Philomena as well, like even the car scenes, you know, those car scenes in Philomena between Steve Coogan and, the, and on the airplane as well, when they're travelling together, those moments are so special within that film and they've even lifted that into this film as well you know those kind of travelling scenes when they're when they're on their way to the airport and she wants to get there early so she can do some duty free shopping and things like yeah, that it's, 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 it's very very odd how much the two films match up but then you know it, it's one of these cases where on paper very similar on the screen totally different Okay, well, so we don't have time to start another film right now, but keep those uh, actor-director things coming in as well. There's some great ones coming in. Duncan says, without doubt, my favourite actor-turned-director would be Billy Bob Thornton and the outstanding Sling Blade. Uh, Matt says, Sarah Poli, uh, intelligent and varied filmmaker. Sarah says, great example of actor-turned-director has to be of course, Paddy Constein, Tyrannosaur, powerful, beautiful film. You can keep those coming in. Uh, you can email me, uh, which is uh, at mailbbc.co.uk, or you can tweet us at Wittertainment, or of course, 85058 is the text number. Still to come, we've got quite a few films to get through uh, this afternoon. None least be Force Majeure, uh, and of course, the Ryan Gosling directorial debut, The Lost, Lost River. River. I wonder who's going to agree and disagree on that one. Uh, just come up to 20 to 4 on 5 Live. Right, TV movie of the week. Uh, we'll get to Hot Tub Time Machine 2 in just a second. It's quite good because some people are trying to guess what you would pick. Someone's got it right. Have they? I'm thinking yeah. that might be Andrew Galvin. Am I right? If Robbie has any sense, he'll choose Grave of the Fireflies. For my money, the greatest animated film ever made. I would choose it myself, but last time I watched it, it tore my heart apart and I don't know if I could do it again. Yes, that's it. Grave of the Fireflies. Hot on! Yes. Know you so well. Uh, loads of you picking some great ones. A lot of you picking Bill and Ted as well, which is on this week. Um, but I'm going to go with either it's a cross between ET for me, which is on Saturday afternoon. I mean, every time that film's on, I have to watch it. Cabin in the Woods as well, which I absolutely loved. I thought it was a great, great, great film. That's on uh, Tuesday night on Channel Five. I think. Yeah, here we go. Lovely. Shall we move on to Hot Tub? Let's do that, yes. Okay then. Hot Tub Time Machine 2. I like the first one. I love the first one. The first one came out after The Hangover and it was one of this kind of clutch of uh, films about men trying to get back to their, <laughs> not the childhood, but the youth, you know, mm -hmm. so they kind of misspend it, you know, get involved in that kind of drunkenness and chaos yeah. that they remembered from the, the, the from the younger days. So this is something that The Hangover set up. Todd Phillips' due date kind of followed on. Next door is getting to the Greek. Yeah. Grown Ups, of course, with Adam Sandler. How could we forget? And Hot Tub Time Machine 2. Hot Tub Time Machine for me was the uh, most successful of those uh, partly because I think it was just funnier than the others it has this incredibly kind of brutalising bitter humour mm. um, because its characters are screw-ups and they, you know, they know that they're screw-ups and they feel that their lives have gone, uh, gone off the rails and so they kind of via this magical hot tub go back to the skiing holiday in 1986 where they thought things all started to go wrong and the clever thing about the film is it takes you back with it to the 80s. You know, it's cast John Cusack as its hero, of course, from films like Say Anything, countless uh, teen comedies from the 80s. Someone mm -hmm. that, you know, you, you know as a kind of a, a lovable underdog uh, teen comedy hero. 
in Hot Tub Time Machine, he is this kind of beaten down, divorcee, bitter at the world, things haven't worked out. And so there's this kind of edge and it dredges up your nostalgia, but then also undercuts it. Again, Chris Glover as well from back, first Back to the Future film, please. Yeah. Uh, a kind of a cantankerous uh, bellhop. <laughs> and uh, it was very, very cleverly done. Watching Hot Tub Time Machine 2, which is made with, I think, three quarters of the original cast, the same director, one of the original three writers. Yeah, I mean, like the, the Rob Corddry and... Um... Craig Robinson. Craig Robinson. Yep, Clark, I mean, yeah, I think they're great. They're funny people. And it made me wonder if perhaps some of the cleverness of the first film was a fluke because this is absolutely dreadful. I mean, it's it, oh. it, 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 it's it's um, it's the kind of film that, that actually the characters from the first Hot Tub Time Machine film would enjoy. And what they've the, the kind of the mistake that they've made is thinking that by repeating what they did the first time around with new characters and new with the same characters but in new circumstances will work, and it very much doesn't. At the start of the film, we pick up where the last one left off. Uh, Rob Corddry's character Lou has manipulated the past, so he is now this uh, very rich and uh, terrible internet billionaire, and he is shot at a soiree at his mansion. And so uh, his friends, played by Craig Robinson and Clark Duke, John Cusack, by the way. Nowhere to be seen, good call, John. Just, you know, it was, was very, very well judged indeed. But Craig Robinson and Clark Duke's characters drag him off into the hot tub with the plan of going back in time to find his killer. However, the hot tub doesn't take them back in time at all. Uh, let's listen to this clip where they find out where it has taken them. March 26, 2025, from Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York.com, this is The Daily Show with Jessica Williams. 2025. Welcome to The Daily Show. I'm Jessica Williams. Tonight's guest, Dame Jennifer Lawrence, promoting her Meryl Streep biopic, Streepin' It Real. Hey, how do they get the people to be on this show? So by now you've all seen the NSA satellite footage of the road rage incident between two self-driving smart cars in New Detroit. President Neil Patrick Harris has called for greater regulation of the industry, while congressional Republicans defend every sentient automobile's constitutional right to shoot a black car if it's acting funny. I like the Streepin' It Real. Streepin' It Real that's is funny. That's, that's possibly the film's one and only laugh. <laughs> um, the problem is, you know, when, when you have a hit comedy like Hot Tub Time Machine, to replicate the kind of chemistry between the cast uh, that, that came up in that film, particularly if the, the, the lead cast member is missing, is very, very difficult. So they've not bothered to even try to do that. What instead they've done is taken those kind of little improv asides and, you know, one-liners and sight gags from the first film and basically done them again and treated it as if the audience wants to come back and see all these jokes for Hot Tub Time Machine just being done once more. You know, if I want to watch Hot Tub Time Machine, science has an answer for that, and it's to go and watch Hot Tub Time Machine. In the second film, you want them to try different things. It's not even as if the repetition is clever, as in the Back to the Future films, where, you know, kind of fate is compelling, Biff yeah. Cannon, whether we're in the 1800s, the, the 1900s, or, or, or the early part of the 21st century, fate will always compel Biff Cannon to crash into a truck of manure, but in very different, you know, in kind of yeah. slightly different ways. It's not like that. It's just just let's do the same material again. And, and the problem with this is you cannot put these same jokes back into these characters' mouths and expect them to come out the same way. You know, Rob Cordry's character in the first film was a kind of a, you know, he was a, a total failure in life. He was suicidal. Everything had, had kind of broken down. And it, it deployed a, a kind of humour that's called gay panic, which was also in, in the Will Ferrell film Get Hard that we're talking about earlier. Yeah where basically uh, heterosexual men are terrified of, uh, of, of doing anything homosexual because I think because the idea is, the joke is that they might actually secretly like it. Now, for Rob Corddry's character to do that in the first Hot Tub Time Machine, it worked because yeah. he was someone who was self-loathing yeah. and he was kind of unfulfilled sexually, all sorts of ways. And so for him to have massive hang-ups about this, that was what was funny. But now he is a billionaire, he's married, he's happy. And so for him to come up with these jokes again, it just seems big. And it's, it's totally a perfect, perfect example of how the context for a joke is 
is key. And the film is just kind of unpleasant and curdled and nasty throughout. You really miss John Cusack in it because without him as the kind of calm centre of that foursome, the foursome yeah. become a trio. Adam Scott comes in, who's normally very funny as John Cusack's character's son from 2025. But there's just no replacing Cusack. Chevy Chase? Chevy Chase pops up again for yes. one scene, but one scene only. Love Chevy Chase. Right, uh, there we go. Hot Tub Time Machine 2. Um, what next? What, what do you want to do talk next? About now? Should we talk about Good Kill? We could do Good Kill. We could do... Uh, oh, yeah, we've got, yeah, we've okay. got Lost River to do Good Kill and, of course, Force Majeure. Well, let's do Lost River. OK. Because there's, you know, there's a lot to say about yeah. Lost River. Lost River, the debut film of Ryan Gosling. Now, the first time I saw uh, Lost River was at Cannes 11 months ago uh, where it had its world premiere mm-hmm. and the re- reception I think you would kindly say was lively. Now it, it got terrible reviews, terrible, terrible reviews, some of the worst reviews at Cannes I've ever seen but it did have a serious hardcore of defenders as well who tended to be uh, younger and we'll come back to, 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 to the, the, the reason for why I think that uh, might be the case in a bit. Um, in Lost River you have, uh, it's, it's set in this kind of present day but nightmarish twist on the American heartlands so it's, it's in a town called Lost River which is it was shot in Detroit so somewhere that's been a massive victim of the financial downturn but the town is also flooded around it so there's a sense of you know the Louisiana Bayou and the flooding down mm. in New Orleans as well that's worked in there as well and you have a single mother who's played by Christina Hendricks who is desperately trying to provide for her kids and uh, not lose her house and so she goes to the bank manager who's played by Ben Mendelsohn and says um you know, I need a lifeline here. And he says, well, why don't you work in this kind of strange nightclub that I've also set up in town? So he gets her job at the nightclub and the nightclub is this weird kind of gothic burlesque place. Mm. At the same time, her son, who's called Bones, who's played by a Scottish actor called Ian de Castcar, uh, is going around stripping copper from the local houses to try and scrape by, you know, help her earn a bit of money. Yeah, And he falls into this feud with this local gangster called Bully, who's played by Matt Smith. And we have a clip of uh, some of Matt Smith's typical dialogue from the film now. And this is this is when we first meet his character. Look at my muscles, 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 look at my muscles. It's almost like a nightmare version of an ice cream van. That's what I see. That it's, a, it's a nightmare version of something. I mean, of, 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 that's what I see of that scene when he's going around with a loudspeaker on the back of this kind of derelict kind of you know backdrop of Detroit. Since the film premiered at Cannes, it has been substantially uh, reworked. I think it's lost about ten minutes of, of, of footage and kind of preparing it for for release. I think to kind of try and ameliorate these bad reviews, I have to say I, do, I don't think it's done much good. I think Lost River, and much as I love Ryan Gosling as a, as a movie star, and I think he probably does have a good film in him as a director, uh, this categorically isn't it. It's, it's incredibly misconceived from start to finish. The first problem is it feels as if Gosling is telling us more about the contents of his DVD collection than than about himself or about anything think he wants to see and the film kind of borrows images rather than borrows i mean copies and pastes i should say which he's not scared he's not hiding a no 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 he's 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 very kind of pleased to say that and and i think you know if you're a filmmaker like nicholas winning reffin who's worked with gosling a number of times on drive and only god forgives reffin is a kind of filmmaker who draws on you know david lynch and uh he he draws on um you know alejandro yodorovsky and, and, and many many directors but when reffin does it you feel as if he's putting his own personal spin on it and it's unmistakably a nicholas winning reffin film if you cut up lost river into its component shots it would look like student filmmakers trying to replicate the shots by 
Malik or Lynch or Refn or Mario Bava or whoever it is. And the film just doesn't have an original thought in its head. And it's incredibly sad to see a lot of money being spent and a brilliantly talented uh, cinematographer, Benoit Deby, who's shot with uh, Harmony Karine again, lots of Harmony Karine in here and, and Gaspar Noe, lots of Gaspar Noe too. But there's nothing personal in it at all, it feels. And, you know, you're just watching someone try to replicate the, the, the look of films by filmmakers that he loves. See, and- I have to disagree because I'm not as knowledgeable on you in terms of the world of cinema and kind of, I, you know, I know Terence Malick and I know some of the other people you're mentioning. And for me, watching that film, it's kind of like, I see that there are different kind of um, colour scapes to the film. And for me, when I'm watching it, I kind of drawn, that's an emotion I should be feeling with regards to the colour scape that's around that. Mm-hmm. Um, the characters I thought that he created, because he's written this as well. Um, and, you know, it could have been easy for him, I think, to either to either write it and not direct it. Um, and also the question I'm sure came up about whether he should be in it or not yes, as well. Yes, it's interesting that Ian DeCastico's character uh, is very, very much groomed to look like Ryan Gosling of 10 years ago. I mean, that, that just strikes me as a, a, you know, the kind of role that Gosling could have done in his sleep. Uh, but the, the problem with but it Ian is, does it brilliantly. I think he's, an, he's he does, incredibly he does. kind of watchable and personable. And the, the, he doesn't do a lot, but the little that he does, for me anyway, he pulls me in. And I kind of like... You know, you feel the anger for that character. You feel the desperation for that character as well. I'll agree with you that he doesn't do much. Um, but, you know, when I was queuing for the film, uh, no, it was, it was queuing for a separate film at Cannes, first time around I saw it, there was a really young guy behind me in the queue who was talking to some friends. And he said, you know, guys, uh, until last night, my favourite film of all time was Only God Forgives. And then I saw Lost River. And you kind of, you know, my, my instinct was to kind of turn around and kind of shake him by the shoulders and yeah. say, you know, you need to go and see the films that these are inspired yeah, yeah, yeah. by, you know, go back to Malik, go back to Lynch, go back to the Giallo by Mario Bava that a lot of these kind of nightmares nightclub scenes are seen on and you'll see where he's just kind of taken it from and you'll see how soulless and, uh, you know, box ticking an exercise this film is. The other problem with it is, is because it's set in this, it's set in this incredibly poor, uh, deprived community but the film looks very expensive and it has the the sense and i've got no doubt that this is not gosling's intention at all but that he has rocked up with his showbiz friends from los angeles to kind of see how poor people live for a while and you know there are real detroit uh, residents in the film they pop up um you know to chat to the the characters in these kind of freewheeling very kind of improvisational feeling scenes and there's something almost kind of distasteful about the way that they're kind of sprinkled on like a little bit of salt and pepper just to kind of keep it real and keep it edgy and then when the story needs to progress sweep these people off screen now i gather that gosling actually went up to detroit and shot on a a, a small camera just went around and shot these residents first up and kind of to get a feel for the the environment and 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 to talk to these people and hear the way that they 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 spoke and and the way that they kind of talked about their experiences up there Mm. in order to then write the film that's the film he should have made, you know, go out there with a small budget, you know, with one camera operator, with maybe like one actor, two actors and, and learn the craft, you know, learn the discipline or write for someone else or try a small, uh, you know, a short film first. This feels like massively overreaching. I think the film is a total catastrophe. If you hadn't, if, if, it, if, if he'd kind of done it under a pseudonym, OK, so if you didn't know that it was written and directed by Gosling, do you think you'd have a different opinion? Uh, yeah, I think I would have been harder on it because I, w- I was willing Ryan Gosling oh, to do I'd well. You know, I love Ryan Gosling. And I think, as I say, I think there's a good film. And you have to look at the way that Ben Affleck's films as director were received to see that it's not this kind of uh, weird critical envy. You know, Ben Affleck is a, is a pretty solid director. You know, Gone Baby Gone, fantastic debut. Uh, the Town was just a ter- terrific kind of crime movie. And, mm. um, and you know, obviously... He I didn't go, go straight in there, though, with writing and directing, though. 
athlete. Do you know what I mean? Well, he right. wrote he first. He worked his way up to it. Exactly. Yeah, he worked. That's what Ryan Gosling should have done. And this is just kind of horribly overreach. And it's like, you know, watching, I felt like Ian Malcolm, you know, sitting in the Jeep at Jurassic Park, watching this kind of catastrophe unfold in front of him. And you think, you know, science should have told us this. You know, he, he, he realised that he could do this and he didn't stop to think whether or not he should. You know, he stood on the shoulder of geniuses. I'm not going to do the Ian Malcolm speech off, you know, uh, in full. But he stood Please on the shoulder of geniuses. Time. And then before he knew what he had, you know, he patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox and was trying to sell it. And it was too much. You know, I don't, you know, I would love to see Ryan Gosling succeed as a filmmaker, but this this is not a success. I am. Um, I completely disagree with you on that. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. It's not perfect. There are flaws to it. But I think in terms of the characters that he's created and the performances, I mean, Ben Mendelsohn as well was menacing. And Saoirse Ronan, who I haven't even mentioned as well, I think is is quite brilliant in it as well. And I love the fact that he's kind of pulled on, you know, a couple of really good young British actors as well that he's put in there as well. It would have been really easy for him not to kind of go that route as well. Um, the good thing about it as well in terms of it's 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 out there for everyone to see in terms of it's not just a cinema release, it's, it's on demand as well. So if you do want to kind of agree or disagree with Robbie or I, it's straight away there available after the show. So. Yes, look, I mean, I can give you, if people want to get in touch on Facebook, I can give you a list of things to see instead of Lost River or after <laughs> having seen Lost River to see where the influences came from. Well, that's the if thing, it's a it's springboard like... into great kind of American independent cinema for people, that's, that's going to be great. Two springboards, a springboard for Gosling in your eyes making a better film and also a springboard in terms of a new generation discovering those films that you think that he's, you know, that, that you say he's completely lifted. So that's, there's a good to come out of, of what you think is a wrong. Um, loads of you getting in touch as well. Actress turned directors quickly. Hugh says, um, loving the show, especially Edith's interview. Keanu, thank you. Regards to actors turned directors. I would love to mention Frank Sinatra's 1965 anti-warm film, None But the Brave. This was Sinatra's only directing job for the big screen. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that indeed. Right, another review. We've probably got time for... One can, or two, maybe? Can we try and race through two, because okay. they're both worth mentioning. Good okay, Kill. Keep them short, then. It, it's Good Kill is a film by Andrew Nichol, who did Gattaca and Lord of, yep. uh, Lord of War. Uh, it's a film, he did both those movies with Ethan Hawke, and this is, his, I think, probably a more successful film than those. This is the film, really, that American Sniper was trying to be, because it's an investigation into how modern warfare works now. Ethan Hawke's character works on an airbase just outside Las Vegas, Nevada, and he goes into an office and controls drone aircraft that are flying over Afghanistan and does drone strikes. Um, the, 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 the film very much sets this up as an office job. He's separated from the reality of warfare and it's about the kind of the moral conundrum that, that come up as a result of that. I found this, it's kind of not fully realised. The central thing with Ethan Hawke is brilliant. The stuff around it, less so. And in, in the end, it kind of lays out the arguments a little bit too cleanly for me. But, but you know, overall, this is worth seeing. Very interesting and, and, and much juicier than American Sniper. I'm so glad that he's back on screen properly, Ethan Hawke, yeah. isn't it? It's great. It's a great thing. Right. Um, finally then, Force, Force Majeure, which is a film by uh, a Swedish director called Ruben Ostlund, who's not particularly well known in this country. Uh, I hope that this is the film that we'll really see him break out. Imagine, if you will, an episode of Peep Show guest directed by Michael Haneke, and you get a kind of an idea for just how kind of bone-itchingly uncomfortable this film is, but it's very, very funny and very, very brutal. Um, it's about a, a very well-to-do Swedish family, uh, very attractive, fantastic cheekbones, all go up to uh, the Alps for a skiing holiday. And on the, the second morning, they've had a fantastic first day, on the second morning they're sitting out on the terrace with all these other families, and a controlled avalanche is set off by the resort, which comes tumbling down the mountainside. Now, they're kind of marvelling at it until it gets very close and they think, oh dear, uh, this is actually going to hit us. <laughs> the mother's instinct, Edda, is to, to kind of gather her children in and basically protect them from this onslaught of what she thinks is going to be 
this onslaught of snow. The father's instinct, Tomas, is to grab his iPhone and leg it. <laughs> and his gloves. And his gloves, his ski gloves as well. He spent a lot of money on the ski gloves. And so there's this fantastic moment. The avalanche passes. It was actually just a, a cloud of dust that was thrown up by the real avalanche. So there was no danger at all. But then the father has to come back and the whole family has to come to terms with the fact that when the chips were down... He got up and skedaddled, exactly. And it's this wonderful sense that you are not in control of your true self and that, you know, you can be shown up to be the fraud that you are at any point. It's just incredibly, uh, dramatically exciting. Ruben Ostland, as I say, he cranks up the discomfort to, you know, beyond 11, I mean, up to about 36. It's just an incredibly kind of uh, difficult film to watch, but very, very exciting, very darkly funny in places. And the ending, there's this wonderful double ending where it kind of, I don't want to really talk about it, but no, it, there's, there's two beautiful images in which these two scenes end on that just, uh, you know, make the, make the whole thing and all the discomfort leading up to it very worthwhile. I am... Um... I, I, I mean, it wasn't awful, I didn't think, but I didn't laugh as much as, as obviously you did. The one piece part that I did laugh at was where the dad is hanging out with his other dude and they've been away skiing for the day and they're lying on their deck chairs on the deck as they do and these this girl comes up and, and they think that she's hitting on them. Um, I'm not going to say what happens after that, but that was the funniest part And for, for me. 30 seconds, the dad's <laughs> masculinity and sense of superiority is restored and it's beautiful and it's just, it's in- incredibly, like it's la- a laughter of despair, yeah. I think. You know, it's very, very dark. I just um, hated very everyone annoying. in the film. Yeah, that's the idea. I hated that's the idea. everyone. But goodness, compared to Ruben Austin's other stuff, this is a read. Really? You know, it makes, his last film play makes this look like the sound of music. I'm, I was shouting at the screen at times. It was just like, you know, I was annoying the neighbours watching this. It was just kind of... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, uh, yeah, but but weirdly, after watching now and talking to you about it, it kind of like it's weird. In, in the in the experience of watching it, the uncomfortableness was maybe something that made me feel like that. But then post it and talking about it, I kind of think I might have enjoyed it more than I realised. It, it comes down to the way in which Ruben Austin shoots as well, because he he works with incredibly uh, high definition digital photography, and he stands very far back from a scene and sets the camera up normally still just to record what goes on. And then mm. in the edit suite later, he decides not only where to cut this, this the scene, but which part of the scene to zoom in on. And so you know you can have a small part of a large frame can be all that you see. Yeah, and it really enhances this idea that you're being uh you know you're not just watching the film, but you're surveilling it you're, you're you're kind of prurient and spying in on this family's distress okay well this has been a something else production for bbc radio 5 live robbie movie of the week i think I'm it's much... john wick but with a shout out for force majeure i mean john wick is just action nice. films that are too rare to let this go past but force majeure too uh, well listen thank you very much for listening being part of the show as well i'll be back next week with james king and our special guest live in the studio it's going to be none other than alan rickman so i'll see you back here next friday for more robbie thanks very much thank but, you as always that was the show. At the beginning of the show, you might have heard us uh, mention Katie's email where uh, she was asking about uh, our thoughts on how men are represented in modern cinema and how that's possibly changed from the past. So you mentioned two films that you reviewed just there, Hot Top Time Machine 2 and Force Majeure. So what's your, what's your comments with regards to her specific question? Well, I think I would urge Katie to go out and see Force Majeure. I would urge, of course, everyone to go out and see Force Majeure this week. But you've got there a story of uh, basically modern masculinity in crisis because you've got the head of the family, uh, the, the father figure in the film, who's, who's very much... Uh, you know, he's provided for his family to allow them to go to this fantastic uh, ski resort for their holiday. He's, he's you know, working even while he's there, tapping away on the iPhone. This is, of course, one of the reasons he instinctively reaches for it is because his work email is on there. He doesn't want to be out of touch. But then when it's discovered as, as a result of this avalanche that he is not the, the kind of the alpha uh, lion-like, you know... Um, Mufasa figure that he perhaps <laughs> thought he was, then he just it precipitates a total mental collapse. And, you know, there's a fantastic scene uh, partway through the film, which is 
almost unwatchable where he just dissolves down into tears in front of his kids and his kids treat him as their kid and they come in to comfort him and sort of lie on top and give him a hug and his wife uh, is just totally lost because she has no idea what to do with this big crying blubbery wreck. His crying is so full on. Can I just put a warning out there? It like made me throw a piece of paper at the telly. And, and something that Ruben Austin does is he shows you just how completely fragile this idea of masculine supremacy and being the provider and being yeah. the, the person that takes care of the family is. That's something it would be very hard to imagine being expressed quite as directly in the past. Although, of course, you know, it, it has been a lot of the um uh the, the the melodramas by douglas sirk and things are about family in crisis and, mm. you know, uh when douglas sirk was making films uh after the second world war uh america was still very much coming to terms with its identity after the second world war you know what what was it as a nation what did it believe in and uh sirk's films which at the time were kind of seen as b-movies they were seen as something for women and kind of tidied off into the corner were about kind of resussing out what the family unit meant and you can see the changing kind of gender roles there uh, in, in in a lot of old Sark uh, movies. And then also uh, in, um, now I'm going to get the titles mixed up here, but in the uh, the film that Julianne Moore did that was a riff on Sark movies called All That Heaven Allows. Oh no, All That Heaven Allows was the Sark film. Yeah. And then Far From Heaven was the Todd Haynes film yeah. that Julianne Moore yeah. did. And again, that's kind of, you know, back in time, looking at when that family was in a very kind of strictly, uh, you know, gender-defined roles and then that, how that kind of becomes upset where the husband who's hiding kind of dark secrets, uh, Julianne Moore's character, the wife, is also hiding secrets of her own and how those kind of come bubbling up to the surface. So I'd recommend, you know, first of all, see Force Majeure, but then to see where that stands in, yeah. in, 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 in terms of this storytelling, you know, go back to the 50s melodramas, go back to Douglas Sirk yeah. and then do seek out Far From Heaven as well. Um, and Hot Tub Time Machine too. And Hot Tub Time Machine too, of course, as well, which is going to be the, the perfect, middle. you know, quintuple bill. with those. Yeah, obviously. Uh, a couple of films that we didn't get a chance to mention in the show today that we should definitely mention. Um, and, and one that I would really like to mention is this new um, documentary about Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain Montage of Heck. And it's been uh, directed by Brett Morgan, who, who's done some, some great work. Um, none least the, the Kid Stays in the Picture and also Crossfire Hurricane, which is a great documentary about uh, Rolling Stones. This is an incredible, it's a long film, it's over two hours long, um, but it's an incredible in-depth homage uh, and kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's not any way trying to kind of, it, it's not got an agenda. It's not trying to sort of kind of fire people off against each other. Everybody is there talking about this one person uh, and they're not there about to talk about anything else apart from him. He's had amazing access to old family footage of, you know, old cine films from both Kurt's family, but also from Courtney Love as well, diaries as well. And the way that these diaries are brought to life and these stories are brought to life in the film is incredibly clever and delicately handled. Animation it's done through and, and the way that the, the letters are kind of animated off the page, certain sentences and things that he says. It's really beautiful. It's really powerful. Uh, and one of the things that stood out for me on, on when he was writing about the time when him and Courtney first got together was uh, within a diary entry, he, he wrote something that said, uh, I'll make myself miserable to make you happy. And the moments that you see of really kind of personal footage of himself and Courtney and the birth of their daughter, Frances Bean, are, are really poignant. And, and it's really sad to watch as well, to kind of see how this 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 life was 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 came came to a short end, um, so I would I would employ you to see it. I think it's an incredible and a moving piece of yeah. I'm sorry to have missed the the press preview. I was out of the country on a secret uh, film related mission, 
at the time, but I'm desperate to catch up. Yeah, I've heard right. nothing but great reports. Yeah, and just the way as well that they managed to how 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 engrossed he was in this world and how involved he was in everything. From you know, you, you, we all remember that that. Um, uh, it smells like Teen Spirit video and how he, all these diary entries of little kind of almost uh, shots of how he saw the video playing out and things like that and the reality of what it was in the end. So, yeah, great documentary. And there's a film that you wanted to talk about as well. Yes, this is on DVD for the first time ever. You will not believe that this film has not been released right? on DVD. Bugsy Malone. Oh. Um, now, I had this on VHS as a kid. I think the, the, the tape uh, finally <laughs> wore through to dust. I mean... Yeah. I, I, I think possibly the reason I didn't realise it was on DVD was because I'd watched it so many mm-hmm. times as a kid. What's really impressive about Bugsy Malone is, first of all, it's a film that would never be made today. It's an incredibly strange idea. And it was actually um, Alan Parker, I think, was telling stories to his kids in the back of the car um, on, on, on long car journeys and about films that he'd seen, um, you know, set in this kind of uh, New York gangland, yeah. uh, Prohibition era. But he'd sort of adapted them as kids' suggestion uh, to, to starring kids. And so that was where the nut of the idea came from. And then, you know, this grew into this uh, incredibly strange and wonderful musical. And what I love about Bugsy Malone is there is no kind of wink to the audience uh, or, you know, kind of idea that this is just putting on a show or it's just kids playing at being gangsters. The kids play it completely straight and mm-hmm. the, the performances are generally pretty good. They, they auditioned... Uh, for, for the cast very, very, very diligently. So you've got on the one hand Jodie Foster as Tallulah, who was someone who was already doing really well. I think I think by that time she was already starring in the Paper Moon TV series and she was already known as a young, serious talent. So, yeah. so there's her on the other hand. But uh, on, on one hand, I should say, and on the other hand, you know, they were going around schools in Harlem and Brooklyn in New York, just screen testing people. Uh, the guy who plays Fat Sam was the naughtiest kid in class. He was, you know, he was cast for that, just never acted before. Dexter Fletcher, babyface. Dexter Fletcher, baby, babyface, babyface, get babyface. And the thing is, you know, the, the DVD... Um, Actor and director. The check disc, exactly, and a very good one as well. The, the check disc arrived in the post and I kind of thought, OK, I'll, I'll sit down and watch five minutes of this just to refresh my memory of what Bugsy Malone is like and, you know, kind of start the disc in. You know, an hour and a half later, da, 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 <laughs> you give a little love and exactly. it's irresistible. That's, do you know what? That should be the, the thing that we leave people with today to take forward into tomorrow and the next day. You give a little love and it all comes back to After you. I've panned half the films on the <laughs> podcast. What a great moral. Yeah, fantastic. But yeah, I recently rewatched it with my six-year-old. He'd never seen it. And, uh, and and weirdly, some of the older kids at school had done it as a kind of school play type thing. Right, right. And he absolutely loved it. And same thing watching that film. It was almost like watching it again for the first time. It's just brilliantly done on all levels. Yeah, the tone, costume design is lovely. Everything. They, they used real fabric from the from the era as well. You know, they kind of scoured flea markets and got it was it was the attention to detail on Bugsy Malone and and that huge set. I mean, it's like the kind of thing that you know Sergio Leone was working with on a smaller scale <laughs> yeah. on Once Upon a Time in America. But it's just this this dedication to getting old New York exactly right with the, the neon the cars signs. with the pedals, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's great. I just all I can hear when I think of it is that. Ding, 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 ding. We could, yeah. Anyway, well, let's not finish the podcast by singing, shall we, Robbie? Let's not. Shall we? Let's not. Let's, let's not. Let's, let's not. not. Uh, I'll be back next week uh, with uh, James King, and we'll have Alan Rickman live on the show uh, on the show next Friday. See you then. See ya. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio Five Live. BBC.co.uk/slash Five Live.